look around. That's what a saint looks like. Look around. All the hands down. You know the rest. You know the rest. Um, I just want to begin by giving a huge thank you to David Sherwood for the way that he has led us really to the foot of the cross through his experience. And, and he might have... There he is. Can, can we just give David a giant hand? Uh, David, you, you have done so much for us uh, this week. There have been, you know, teary eyes, and I know you didn't come here to make us cry, but you have succeeded anyway. Um, if you can just imagine, this was the thought that dawned on me when I was sitting at the back there listening to David. This was amazing. It was so well written. I think you need to write a book, David. I've, I've had that thought several times. Amen? I mean, it's just, you're, you're a fantastic writer. A fantastic writer. In fact, if, if you want to read... Um, an amazing two-part blog post that David wrote, oh, probably five years ago, David, seven years ago. You can go on the Lightbearers website. That's lightbearers.org. Make a note of this. Lightbearers.org. And if you just go to the search engine there and type in the parable of Luke, the parable of Luke, in there David wrote uh, a two-part story on the parable of Luke. And I remember thinking back then, David, that was years ago. Man, this guy should write a book. And then with the follow-up material that you've presented here, it's just the lessons, uh, even for those of us that don't have a child that have been born with the um, serious and significant complications that Luke has. I mean, it's just, it's just good parenting. Amen, church? Just good parenting and, and good evaluation. And, and God has given you tremendous insights, David, and it's just proud to call you a friend. I'm, I'm happy that... Uh, I was actually wondering this. Who baptized Jeannie? Did I baptize Jeannie? That's what I thought. I baptized Jeannie and I married you. So it's just an honor to, to be a part of your life. And you have done everything that I hoped you would this week and more. And so what I'm going to do at the end of this is I'm just going to invite David up. I'm going to make an appeal, but I'm going to invite David back up. And I want us just to have special prayer for the ongoing treatment of Luke and for David and Jeannie and Noah and Anna Joy. So David, don't leave. Um, be ready for that. Um, also, as I've mentioned, we're having a concert tonight. That concert starts at 7. That's going to be Josh and company, Robbie Morgan. It's going to be absolutely great. So please come. And I've been informed by Karen North that we will have the Connections Cafe open. I think the decor is maybe not uh, quite as shay as it was throughout the week, but there are going to be some hot drinks and other things available. So please, if you were planning on leaving early, I'm inviting you to not do that. Uh, two more quick thank yous. I want to give a giant thank you to Mel and Sam and Britt and the entire music team. Can we give them a huge round of applause? I, I have walked over this campus and had numerous people. It's happened already many, many times, a dozen times or more. People stop me and say, is there any way to get these guys to record an album? Right. I mean, the music has just been so good in connections. And when I sort of shared with them what my vision was, they all they were like, yep, I see it. I've got it. And they have executed that vision to perfection. And I told them um, I would love to have them back next year. How do you guys feel about that? Would that be a good idea? And then the final thank you I want to give is to Dr. Glenn Hughes. Glenn, where are you at? 
Did you leave? Ran over to the... Okay, I'm not going to thank you if you've left. Okay. Um, I'm glad if you could just stand up briefly. Put the spotlight on him there. This has been Dr. Hughes. He has given us amazing morning devotions. And the Spirit of God has, has worked through Dr. Hughes. He's an amazing uh, part of this team. Um, I've got a goal here. My goal here is to be done by 12.30, which is going to be a piece of cake because it's only 11.30. So settle in. Just settle in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is going to be great. Uh, not because the presenter is great, but because the message is great, because the gospel is great, because your son Jesus is great, and because you're great. Father, I think you're going to do something in this tent. As Josh was singing a moment ago, Father, it was good, it was good, it was good, and yet we live in this world of juxtaposition where David can tell us a story about his disabled son and, and we can think with our logic and our, our analysis and our linear mind, that, that's not good. And Father, in a significant sense, it's not. But we have been learning all week that in another sense, you use pain, you use inconvenience, you use illness and sickness. And Father, we're going to see today in John 11 how you use even death. Father, this is a story that many of us know, but I pray that today we would hear it not as an ancient story, but as a modern story. Not as something that happened, but as something that's happening and can even happen today. Father, open our minds that we might have a better understanding of who you are and who we are. And Father, open our minds that we might see that death is not just something that happens at the end of life. We can be dead while breathing. The converse is also true. We can be alive while dead. And so, Father, help us today to have a a larger vision, a wider angle lens on the questions of suffering and death and disease and illness and seizures. Father, help us to take in a bigger picture, a bigger portrait. May that portrait be informed by the text from the Gospel of John is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say with me, amen. Open your Bibles to the book of John. The book of what, everyone? John. Let's remind ourselves of where we've been and where we're going. This is our eighth sermon in the Gospel of John, and we started in John chapter 1, where we took an analysis and an overview of Hebrew versus Greek ways of knowing. A Hebrew gets on the horse, and a Greek analyzes the horse. A Hebrew gasps, and a Greek tries to grasp. That was our first sermon, grasping or gasping. Number two, you ain't seen nothing yet where Jesus invites Nathaniel to come and see even greater things that he had seen. And we talked about how God performs performs confirmational miracles. When you begin to follow, you find that the knowing is in the going. Let's say that together. The knowing is in the going. One more time with more enthusiasm. The knowing is in the going. Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. That was the title of our second sermon. The third sermon was a brief one, and it was the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, shaming the shameless and saving the shameful. And what we saw there was that Jesus sets the terms of engagement, and those terms of engagement center around the cross. Jesus said to Nicodemus, as the, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And God so loved the world, Nicodemus. The fourth sermon, we were in John chapter 4, and we saw that even though the Jews were unbelieving largely, the Jewish leadership certainly were unbelieving, that these Samaritans, the Samaritans of all people, I mean Samaritans, and a Samaritan woman, 
Puh! I mean, just no. And yet John puts these Samaritans right at the outset of his gospel and says that they rush to Jesus. They beg him to stay for two days where the Jews had chased him away, chased him out of the temple, mocked him, derided him, sent their champion Nicodemus to try and set him in his place. And yet here came these Samaritans and they received him and they begged him to stay. And then they said, we now believe that you are the Christ. I wonder if anybody remembers this. The Savior of the world. The Savior of the world and in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, Jesus begins to call the entire world to himself. Then we were in John chapter 5 and 6 and Jesus talks about the bread, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is the source and substance of our happiness. That sermon was titled Bread and Blood. And then we were in John chapter um, which one was that? John chapter 6, where, where following this controversial and confronting situation in the temple where Jesus says, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, the disciples began to wander away and Jesus turned his attention to the disciples and said, will you also go away? And Peter responds and says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to, what are these three words? We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, nobody taught you that. My Father in heaven taught you that. How we know what we know was the title of that sermon. Then we were in John chapter 9, just last night. When one thing is enough. And we saw that the, blind, the man who was blind said, one thing I know, Lord, I believe. And then he began immediately to worship. Jesus here responds with the, the second of these seven equivalences in John. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. We have time for only three of the seven equivalences we've done. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And today we will do another. We learned last night that God not only hears sinners, God heals sinners. Can someone say amen? So we have made our way now to John chapter 11. We're skipping over most of John chapter 10, but notice the last three verses of John 10 with me, if you would. John chapter 10, the last three verses, beginning in verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first. And there he stayed. In, in some sense, the, the gospel of John is coming now to a kind of closure. It's coming, it's coming full circle. This gospel began with John the Baptist in a place announcing, anticipating. There's someone coming whose who's sandal I am not worthy to, to loose. He is coming and Jesus now finds himself there. We are approaching the third and final Passover of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, verse 41. Then many came to him and said, Man, John performed no sign, but all the things that John said about this guy were true. John had said, No, 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 I'm not the Christ. I'm not, I'm not the one. There's one coming after me. I'm baptizing with water. He will baptize with fire. And so in a very organizational and symmetrical sense... Right here at the end of John chapter 10, we are getting set up for the third and final Passover. We've already mentioned briefly the architecture of the Gospel of John. There are three Passovers in John, and even though there are 21 chapters, by the time we get to and through John chapter 11, we're through three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, and from chapter 12 all the way to 21, a full 10 chapters is like a week. It's like a week of time, and we're going to spend no time, particularly on John 12 to 21, the passion but we have spent all of our time building up to this. And, and here in a really beautiful symmetry, it says all the stuff that John said about this guy has come to pass. Jesus is back in that location and then in a very, uh, almost a climactic, a, a, a chiastic cli uh, uh, climax here, verse 42, it says, and many believed in him there. Many believed 
Many believe that's how the Gospel of John opens up. And so commentators have recognized that here in 1042, you are supposed to get a sense of closure. You're supposed to feel like scene one, act one is closed. And we're moving now into the latter part. We're, we're moving now into the, to the, to the passion of Christ where those low cellos begin to make the ominous noise. The low double bass begins to make the ominous noise. We have the strong sense the third and final Passover is just around the corner. But this will not be any ordinary Passover lamb. This will be, as John had announced, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is about ready to come face to face with his own death. But before John will get us there, he's going to tell a story that astonishingly does not appear in Matthew, Mark or Luke. This is the this is the the crowning miracle of the gospel of John and Matthew, Mark and Luke make no mention of it. And John wants you to know before Jesus is going to face his own death at the third and final Passover of John's gospel, he is going to face death in a friend. In a beloved friend named Lazarus, we're in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is a passage that many of us know. We're going to look at it today by the grace of God with new eyes. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. In the town of Mary and her sister Martha, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. This story of the anointing of Jesus by Mary is not mentioned in John which is one of the internal indicators in the Gospel of John that John was aware of the other Gospels, right? This story is mentioned in Matthew, it's mentioned in Luke, and perhaps even in Mark, I'm not recalling right now. But it lets us know that John was aware of the other Gospel stories and why he opted not to include that story, we don't know. Why the synoptics opted not to include the raising of Lazarus, we also don't know. But he says, this was that Mary. He wants you to know the narrator is establishing a context for us. Jesus, Lazarus, Bethany, the Mary that you're familiar with, verse 3. Therefore, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Nothing more needs to be said. There is no request for Jesus to come. They don't even ask Jesus to come because they know that the simple announcement that he whom you love is sick is is request enough. They know Jesus. They love Jesus. They know that Jesus knows them and loves them. And just the announcement, Jesus, he whom you love is sick. They know that Jesus will do the right thing. Jesus can be trusted and no overbearing or manipulative request needs to be made. He whom you love is sick and they believe and they anticipate that Jesus will come. Jesus is somewhere in and around the environs of Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where, but Bethany is about two miles, about three and a half kilometers away from Jerusalem. So it's a short journey. It's, it's just that you, you can walk there in an hour, maybe two at the most. We don't know exactly where Jesus is here, but he's somewhere near Bethany. And so the, the, the family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus are aware that Jesus are, is close. They're aware that, it's, that he's proximate. And so they simply send the message, Jesus, we know you're in the neighborhood. We know you're close. You're in Judea. You're not off in Galilee somewhere. He whom you love is sick and nothing more is said because they know he'll come. They know that Jesus will come. He will come on time. He will do the right thing. And again, I've mentioned this before. I'm going to say it again. One of the challenges that we face in reading Bible stories with the pathos and the, the energy that we should be reading them with is that we know the outcome. And when we know the outcome, it sort of inoculates us from reading the story in real time and engaging with the emotion and the difficulty and the drama and the trauma that would have actually been happening in real time. Right. So when Mary and Martha say he whom you love is sick, they believe as they're, you know, they're just get the picture in your mind's eye by the bedside of Lazarus, who's sweating by the bedside of Lazarus, who's in and out of consciousness. They're dabbing his head. The sickness is going from bad to worse and worse to worse still. 
And they believe that at any moment a familiar figure is going to darken the door. This is, this is Lazarus whom Jesus loves. That familiar figure is going to darken the door. They've seen it done before and they've heard of other instances. Jesus is going to walk in and he's going to say, Lazarus, stand up. Everything's going to be fine. And the story is going to have a happy ending. They're experiencing Lazarus' sickness in real time in the same way that David Sherwood is experiencing Luke's sickness in real time. Right? It would be like, it would be like in the resurrection... When all is said and done and Luke is running around on his own legs and having fun and playing not just with Hawkins but with lions and tigers and and we're all there in happiness, it would be like pretending like that even though there was a happy ending that all of that pain and trauma and drama wasn't experienced in real time. Yeah, we know there's going to be a happy ending but there is difficulty in between the now and the then and that's what we're going to talk about. We need a God who is operative not just back then and not just... In the future, we need a God who is operative in the present tense. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This was mystifying to the disciples, as was many of the things that Jesus said. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus and the world. Now, the text doesn't say that, but this is clearly what John is driving at. Jesus loved Mary, and he loved Martha, and he loved Lazarus, and Jesus loves the world. Can somebody say amen? While the death of Lazarus will give Jesus the opportunity to prove that he loves the Bethany family, the death of Jesus will give God the opportunity to prove that he loves the world. Verse 7, then after these things, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, and this is the final time that they will refer to Jesus by that name. This was a term of respect. Certainly they believe that Jesus is Messiah, but the term of Rabbi is an honorific term. It's a, it's a laudatory term. It's Rabbi. This will be the last time that they will refer to Jesus by the term Rabbi. John has arranged his gospel in such a way that, that from this point forward, Jesus, the, the, the questions about Jesus' identity are fully gone. After the, after the raising of Lazarus, those questions of identity will be gone. And so they say, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and you're going to go there again. They feared for Jesus' safety. They feared for their own safety, no doubt. And Jesus had been in and around Judea on several occasions and they knew that the Jewish leadership were plotting to kill, plotting to harm, plotting, plotting to hurt. And so when Jesus says, we've got to go to Bethany, Now, again, we don't know exactly where Jesus was, but he's certainly not all the way north in Galilee. He's somewhere within a one or a two, maybe a a full day's walk, probably as short as one or two hours. And when he says it's time for us to go to Judea, the disciples protest and say, you know, that might not be such a good idea, teacher. Verse nine, but Jesus answered and said, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, that being himself. But if he walks in the night, he stumbles Because the light is not in him. I love this. Jesus does not say, because he has no light, but because the light is not in him. Jesus is the light of the world. In and of ourselves, we have no light. Can someone say amen? Right? That's that's one of the, the sort of frustrating and difficult hurdles for people that become believers in Jesus to get over is this idea, as the song Amazing Grace says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i have no light i have only darkness inside of me right in another place in scripture i know that in me paul would say that is in my flesh dwells no good thing and so jesus says there's darkness in the world because they don't have the light in them 
It's not your light, it's His light. He is the light of the world. Verse 11, these things He said, and after that He said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. The disciples are just in a continual state here of instructing Messiah. Messiah, it's a bad idea to go to Judea. And here the instruction continues. They say, well, you know, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Maybe we should just let him rest rather than going and bothering him. Verse 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death. But when they thought they thought that he was speaking of taking a rest in sleep, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus, say it with me, Lazarus is dead. In the words of Augustine, it was in reference to Jesus own power that he spoke of Lazarus as sleeping. Jesus was reluctant to call the experience that Lazarus was having death. I love that. I love the fact that that for him, it's not death for him. It's a nap. For him, it's a slumber. For him, it's a sleep. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I'm going to go wake him up. Oh, Lord, don't wake him up. He's going to get better. He's dead, fellas. What you would say is he's dead. But what I, what I love about this passage here is the reluctance, the unwillingness, the recalcitrance of Jesus to refer to death as a, anything other than a sleep. Just this last year, I lost two very close friends, two very close friends, friends that died much earlier than they should have died. One at 46 and one at just past 50. Right. They had no business dying. Right. It was it was just unacceptable for for me and for their families, for them to die. It was unanticipated. It was it was absolutely out of the question. And yet those deaths were experienced in real time. And I suppose that if Jesus were here, he would say, our friend Martin sleeps, our friend David sleeps. But I go that I may wake him from the perspective of God. The death of the body is not a death at all. It is a slumber. It is a rest. It is a sleep. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, and I'm sure that there are people in this tent that have lost those that are close to them over the years and perhaps even this last year. And that's been a traumatizing and difficult experience for you. I want you to hear the words of Jesus this morning. Our friend Mark, our friend Deborah, our friend Matthew, our friend Ronald sleeps. And I'm going to wake him up again. Augustine, he says sleep. Jesus says sleep in reference to his own power. To rouse the dead. Verse 15. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. That you may believe. That word believe is very important. Nevertheless, let us go to him. This is fascinating. That little phrase there, to him, hints at what Jesus is going to do. He doesn't say, let us go to the corpse. Let us go to the tomb. Let us go to the mourning family. What does Jesus say? Let us go where? Where are we going? To him. Who's him? We're going to go to Lazarus. And if the disciples would have been paying attention, if they wouldn't have been so busy trying to instruct Jesus, they would have picked up on that hint. Wait a minute. How can we go to him who is dead? Jesus knows full well what's going to happen. And he gives us a little textual hint here. John gives us a little textual hint. Let us go to him, not to his body, not to his corpse, not to his mourning sisters, not to the other weeping family. Let us go to him. And one day in the not too distant future, God is going to say, let us go to Martin. Let us go to David. Let us go to all of my friends who sleep. Friends, I want to tell you, it's good news that the God of the universe has friends and you are one of those friends. Can you say amen? Our friend Lazarus sleeps. Just let that sink into your soul here this morning. God's posture toward you is a posture of friendship. 
You are the friend of God. The Bible says that Moses was a friend of God. It says that Abraham was the friend of God. It says that Lazarus was a friend of God. In one occasion, a little bit later in the Gospel of John, John will say, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master does. I call you friends. God's posture toward you is a posture of friendliness. It's a posture of love. Our friends are sleeping, but I will go to him. Verse 16. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This show of bravery is shallow and perfunctory, as many of our shows of bravery often are. Right. All the disciples are going to flee when the rubber meets the road and when the chips are really down, they're going to flee. But credit to Thomas, doubting Thomas, as he is sometimes called in this circumstance, he says, well, if Jesus is going to die and we've cast our lot with him, then we will also die. Let's go. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. So Jesus is four days late, at least four days. He's five or six days late. Now go back to that scene in your mind there of an increasingly feverish Lazarus who's laying on his bed with aches and pains and, and, and in and out of consciousness. And, and Mary and Martha are com- completely confused. I mean, Jesus is near. Jesus is close. Jesus is available, proximate and accessible. Why isn't Jesus here? It doesn't make sense. Well, he could have gotten busy with an errand or two, but, but Jesus surely were running out of time. Mary and Martha knew enough about human physiology and sickness to know that that this was serious enough to request Jesus' presence. Jesus, he whom you love is sick. And yet day after day with Lazarus getting worse and worse, they looked to that door waiting for the familiar figure to darken it. And yet Jesus never comes. Jesus never arrives. And I want to say this, when God does not show up, On your timetable, it's not because he's incompetent and it's not because he's insensitive. It's because he sees a broader, bigger narrative and picture that you and I cannot see. God sees something else. But from the perspective of Mary and Martha and certainly of Lazarus, let's be clear. Jesus has failed here. Jesus has shown up late here. Jesus blew it. That's how it looks. It looks like, in fact... You know, we're going to see in a moment here textually, that that's exactly how Mary and Martha and perhaps Lazarus was feeling. They're going to feel like Jesus has let them down. Because he arrived not right on time to, to raise Lazarus up as he had done so many to so many others. He arrives late. And not just late, not fashionably late, four days late. So when Jesus came, verse 17, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, only about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. When then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Mary, this is the very Mary who was so devotionally connected to Jesus, who loved Jesus, who anointed the feet of Jesus with oil and with her own hair. Mary can't face Jesus. Martha, she wants answers. She's confused. She's mourning. But there's still a sort of logical right-brained faith here. And so she wants to go out and see Jesus. She needs to understand why he didn't come, but Mary can't face him. For Mary, it's too hard. It's too difficult. It's, it's bad enough that her brother has died. And now Jesus has arrived late. So Martha goes out, but Mary remains. She stays there. And I suppose the morning party would have been confused by Martha's departure. Martha gets up, you know, forthwith and makes her way out. She comes to Jesus. Now, this dialogue is absolutely beautiful. It's 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 saturated with faith and doubt and confusion and questions. All of the things that happen when those that are near to us, those that are close to us, those that we love are sick or dying. 
Right? We have to remember this story is experienced in real time. And here Mary uh, remains and Martha gets up and goes and meets Jesus. And she needs to understand. She's looking for answers. And the good news is, is that the answer is not in the form of some proposition or some explanation. Jesus is the answer. She's looking for answers. But what she's going to find is an answer with a capital A. Then Martha, as soon as she heard verse 20, that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, sir, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is simultaneously an expression of faith and doubt. It's it's an expression of faith because there is the sort of objective reality here. She is stating, I believe that you are powerful enough that had you been here, this would not have happened. So that certainly is a modicum of faith. there's There's some vestige, residual faith there. You could have prevented this, but it's also wrapped around doubt. Doubt about two things. The first and most obvious thing is, number one, why weren't you here? Right. If you're a difference maker, if you could have been here. And so contained in this statement is a chiding. It's a rebuke. It's a confusion. It's like, why you were so near? The messenger has been back to us for days. We can't understand why, why you wouldn't have come. And while she doesn't say that contained within that simple statement, Lord, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died is a little bit of faith. But there's a lot of doubt. And the second thing, the second doubt here is that something could still be done. That even now at this seemingly late hour that something could still be done. Mary, excuse me, Martha is unambiguous. You could have done something a few days ago. You could have worked in the past. She is unprepared for what Jesus is going to say to her. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now this is fascinating. Because we might be inclined to think that this is an indication of faith, that even now God could work. But this is purely observational, purely analytic. We know that she doesn't believe this in her heart of hearts because in a few short moments, when they're standing at the tomb of Lazarus and Jesus says, take away the stone, it's going to be Martha that protests. It's going to be Martha that says, no, 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 that's a bad idea. That's going to be stinky in there. He's been in there four days. And so this is a statement of a very shallow faith, a very perfunctory faith. And in this way, it's a faith that's resonant with our own faith at times. We say all the platitudinous, theologically correct things. Oh, God could and God might and God is able. But in our heart of hearts, we don't really believe. Someone has wisely said that faith is not merely thinking that God can do something, but acting as though he will. For most of us, faith is believing that God is able, that he's capable. But we don't push our definition of faith. We don't push the boundaries or parameters of faith to be not just what God is able to do or capable of doing, but what he will do. And so Martha encapsulates all of her sisterly frustration and all of her confusion. I suppose it's the very same kind of confusion that those of us that have lost loved ones or had sick uh, ones that are sick around us. The very confusion that David wrote about in that beautiful poem there about about penicillin and all of that is just all confusing. And she wraps that confusion up. And by the way, I've said this to my local church and I'll say it to you. God is not so insecure that he cannot bear your genuine frustration with him. God is not so insecure that you need to be leery or afraid of being perfectly honest with him. Clearly, Martha is being very honest with Jesus here. You could have. Why didn't you? 
Anybody who's read the Psalms or read any of the writings of Paul know that that God is is not so insecure. He's not a petulant deity that can't bear your honest frustrations, your honest critique. God knows that you are dust. God knows that, that, that you don't have all the answers and that he does. And so you can cry out to God in sincere frustration, even anger, even despair. We find the psalmist on occasion saying things like this. God, are you deaf that you cannot hear me and blind that you cannot see? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do my enemies prevail against me? God's shoulders are big enough to bear your complaints. He knows those complaints are in your heart. And so it's no sin if it makes it to your lips. And so Martha comes out with all of the transparency and all of the honesty that true friendship allows for. Lord, if you would have been here, this would have never happened. A little bit of faith mingled with a lot of doubt and confusion. And God's big enough for it. God is big enough for it. But Martha, and we're going to see like Mary in a moment, was very happy with and content with a God who could have worked in the past. But she is somehow strangely blinded to a God who can work in the present. Right here, right now. Verse 23. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24. This is a phrase that's familiar to us in our study of John. Martha said to him, I know. That's what we've been talking about all week. And we have encountered a number of figures and personalities in the gospel of John that know things that they don't really know. Nicodemus, we know you're a teacher sent from God. We know that. The woman at the well, I know when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. There are people that seem to know things that don't actually know. We know who this is. This is the son of Mary and of Joseph. We know. And so Martha here theologically, correctly and astutely says, I know something. And Jesus is like, you don't know half of what you think you know. Your dry and formal theology does not allow for a God who is presently active. You think I could have. And notice this, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Your dry and formal theology, Martha, allows for a God who could have worked four days ago and who will work in the future. And this is the God that many of us worship and serve. A God who has worked in the past and a God who will yet work in the future. But what's going to be absolutely, absolutely profoundly impactful and persuasive in this narrative is that Jesus is about ready to say, I am. Am, of course, is the present tense of the verb to be. It's not the future tense. I will be. And it's not the past tense. I have been. It's the present tense. I am. Martha was abundantly comfortable with a God who was safely ensconced in the past and safely protected by the future. I know you could have done something then and you will yet do something in the future. And and Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. This is number three of the formal equivalences that we have spent time on here in our time together. I am the bread of life in chapter six. I am the light of the world in chapter eight. I am the door in chapter 10, which we didn't look at. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10, which we also didn't look at. And here are the fifth of these seven equivalences. I am the resurrection and the life. Ego a me. I am present tense, the very same. It's, it's, it's purposefully recalling the, 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 the interaction that God had had with Moses when he says, who shall I say, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. I am present. 
And scholars have puzzled over the what's called the tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton are the, the, the four Hebrew letters that make up the, the name of God that's translated or transliterated in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Because the English equivalent of this is Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. The vowelings are not there. The sound is not there. It would be like taking the name David and turning it into D-V-D. Dropping the A, dropping the I, and then there's just sort of this mysterious voweling. What is his name? Is it Devode? Is it David? Is it David? Is it David? Is it David? What is the name? Right? And so we have the tetragrammaton, which just means the four letters. Y, H, W, H. And there are reasons to believe, and, and, and many scholars are persuaded, that, that right at the root of, of the verb, the Hebrew verb to be, is the verb hayah. Haya, I am. I am necessarily and eternally self-existent. I cannot not exist. I am what philosophers would call an ontologically necessary being. My non-existence is not an option. Your non-existence is an, is an option. You could non-exist. In fact, there have been times in the distant past when you did not exist. And for the wicked, there will be times in the future when they will no longer exist. But the Haya exists. By nature of his being, the ha-ya, and then you take that voweling and you feed it into the Y-H-W-H, and you get his Yahweh. Listen to the similarity. Ha-ya-Yahweh. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is, he is bringing all of these, all of these elements of the, the divine name, the mysterious name. And wrapping them up with a bow. And, and we have these uh, things that we've mentioned. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And here I am the resurrection and the life. Martha was very comfortable with a God who had worked. Martha was very comfortable with a God who would, would work. Who would work. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm ready to work right here, right now. I'm not the I was. And I'm not the I will be. God exists in an eternal present to the human situation and to human confusion. And he says, here I am. Where's the body? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is simply the outgrowth of the thing that Jesus had said to his disciples moments before. Our friend Lazarus sleeps. No, 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 no. Let him rest, Jesus. Don't wake him up. He's dead. But of course, Jesus didn't want to say he was dead. From Jesus' perspective, from his, from his eternal perspective he's not dead he's taking a nap a slumber a rest and so here he says he that believes in me will never die can somebody say amen we've mentioned before that the eternal life the everlasting life those are very important words to the gospel of john these are not merely a quantity of years but a quality of existence a different kind of living a different kind of life not merely a sequence of days or of years but a new way of viewing reality to be resurrected, not just in the end times, to be resurrected, not just eschatologically, but to be resurrected every morning, to wake up, to breathe that breath and to see reality through the eyes of the goodness of God in Christ, to experience not only an end time resurrection, but a daily resurrection. Hadn't the apostle Paul said, I die daily Verse 26 again, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then this question he puts to Martha, do you believe in this? The real question he's saying is, do you believe in me? And of course, she's already given her sort of theological exposition. I do believe that you could have and that you will in the future. And yet Jesus is trying to direct her away from the past, what could have been and away from the future, what will yet be to the present. 
Do you believe right now? Do you believe today? Do you believe right now, Martha, in this place, in this circumstance? Verse 27, and she said to him, Lord, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God who has come into the world. And Jesus is satisfied with this answer. He does not chide her for her shallow and somewhat intellectual version of God's actions in human history and in the future. He could have. He could have chided her, and, and I suppose in some sense he did sort of set her straight by saying, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will, even though he dies, he will, even though he sleeps, he will never really die. In some sense there's a chiding here, but he doesn't berate her. He, he knows that we are dust. He knows that our understanding is often pitifully short of the grand reality to which God, to the, to the real truth about the goodness of God. And so when she says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, He's satisfied, verse 28, and when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Where's Mary? This part is left out of the dialogue, but, but Jesus would have sensed that Mary's absence was pregnant with meaning. Martha runs out. We don't know a lot about their personalities, but there's a few other little passages in the Gospels that indicate to us that Martha was a doer. She was a mover. She was a shaker. Mary was more melancholy, more introverted, more devotional. And so at some point in this interaction, it would have moved from mere theology to, hey, listen, where's Mary? Where is Mary? Well, I will go get her. And so she goes in and secretly calls Mary. Verse 29, as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and she came to Jesus. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, comforting her, when they saw Mary rose up quickly and went out following her, they said, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Jesus has not come right to the place of, of mourning. He's not come right to the, to the house. He's not come right to the tomb. He's, he's remaining some, you know, maybe, I don't know, a football's field length or two or three away. A little bit away, and, and, and expositors have puzzled over that. Why didn't Jesus just go? And there's a very uh, good, re there's, there's reason to believe that it's just for pragmatic reasons. Jesus at this point is a very popular and very controversial figure. And he knows that his arrival uh, just at the scene where there would be many people there that didn't believe in him and many people there that were, that were uncomfortable with his claims to uh, messianic, uh, to, to being Messiah, that, that Jesus didn't want to be disruptive. And so Jesus remains distant in some sense and, and Martha comes to him and now Mary comes to him so they can have a private, intimate conversation among friends. Jesus doesn't just come barging into the situation. Verse 32, then when Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell down at his feet. That is the place that you expect to see Mary. Martha, the intellect, Martha trying to understand, Martha reasoning theologically, Mary just falling at his feet, confused, broken, saddened, hurt. Mary fell at his feet and said to him the exact same words that Martha said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. She recapitulates the same thing that Martha had said. Clearly, the ladies have been talking. Over the course of Lazarus's increasing sickness, as he's getting worse and worse, and the fever is getting higher and higher, and he's getting less and less conscious, they were saying, where is Jesus? Where? Jesus could prevent this. We've seen him heal much worse, much worse diseases than this. Where is Jesus? And so they're having that conversation, and then finally when... Lazarus breathes his last. The, the girls would have had over the four days of mourning ample opportunity to have this conversation. And clearly they've had it. Why didn't Jesus come? Why wasn't Jesus here? I suppose there have been many a mournful night for David and Jeannie where they have said, why did this happen? I mean, God, couldn't you have just gone in there and scrambled that 
that little whatever needs to be scrambled chromosomally to, to have this vagus nerve malfunction not happen? Of course they've wrestled with that question. Anybody who has had a, a sickness or an illness in themselves or in somebody else or an unexpected death has wrestled, yeah, 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 but God, come on now. If you can hold the vast cosmos in space, if, if you can organize the, the, the systematic orbiting of planets and of galaxies and of solar system, couldn't you have just moved one little microscopic millimeter of a, of a, of a chromosome so that there isn't a misalignment? Surely you, this is something you could do. And in our confusion and in our desperation and in our anger, we can cry out to God and say, but why? But why? But why? And... The Gospel of John provides no philosophically satisfactory answers. There is no philosophical disquisition in which a theodicy is broken down to our total satisfaction. I wrote a book, about a 300-page book, several years ago in which I tried for my own satisfaction. It was much a personal exercise as anything else, but it turned into a book. I wanted to try and say, can I make some philosophical, logical, analytical sense out of the existence of evil and all the pain and all the suffering and all the death? And I wrote my theodicy out, a book titled God in Pain. Because for me, the, the, the centerpiece to the answer of any question about suffering has to be that God is not aloof from suffering. God is not aloof from pain. God is not distant to our human condition. God is in pain. And if God is in pain, well, that doesn't answer every possible question that we might have. It gives us a direction, a giant arrow in the shape of a cross that says if God can experience pain, he is not aloof from our questions of confusion and frustration and even anger. And what I love about Mary's posture is that she can be simultaneously confused and frustrated and still worship. Don't miss that. Mary falls at the feet of Jesus in an act of resignation and yet also in an act of worship. You can be confused. You can be upset. You can be angry. You can feel alienated from God and still worship. Someone has said, sometimes we say things because we believe them, and other times we say things until we believe them. Sometimes you just have to keep saying it, God is good, God is good, God is good, God is good. Not because in that moment you believe it when your marriage is falling apart or your child has been born with a terrible uh, developmental disability or your, your husband has gone to sleep and never woken up again. You, 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 in that moment... It's okay to be angry, it's okay to be upset, and you can still keep a posture of worship. And you can say, God is good, God is good, God is good, God is good. Not because you believe it in that moment experientially, you say it so that you will believe it. Mary falls at the feet of Jesus in a heap, in an act of worship, and still asks the hard questions. And there are no satisfactory answers because I think at the end of the day, even when we've spent a thousand years with God in heaven, there will be questions to which the only satisfactory answer will be for God to show us or for Jesus to show us the scars in his hands and the scar in his side and the scars in his feet. And he will say, that's the answer. I'm sorry that the, the scholastics at Cambridge, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, and other places may not be satisfied, but that is the answer. Sin is ugly, pain is ugly, death is ugly, and insofar as it's possible, I have brought healing. But if the Creator bears scars, it tells us that there is a mystery in the mingling of God with pain. 
And so if you're looking for an absolute answer, an absolute theodicy to where every question, every situation, every circumstance is summarily answered, you hope in vain. Jesus is the answer. He is not a God who is aloof from pain. He is not a God who is distant to pain. He is a God in pain. Not just physical pain either. We're going to see here momentarily Jesus is in significant emotional pain. Mary falls in a heap at the feet of Jesus. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He is in pain. I just want you to read verse 33 again and just let that soak into you. The creator, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the omnibenevolent, the eternal, the infinite creator, the creator of the universe and of the world groans in his spirit and is troubled. Are you troubled by pain? Are you troubled by beautiful little boys who love golden retrievers having seizures late into the night? Are you troubled by that? Are you troubled by the world that we live in? Are you troubled? So is God. But there is no nice, neat, mathematical answer to all of the questions that you have. If the creator can be troubled, it's okay for you to be troubled. He was troubled in his soul. He was troubled in his spirit. Verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? Where is he? And they said, Lord, come and see. And there's a fascinating little echo here. For those of you that have been with us on the journey, there's a little echo here. And maybe you've already picked up on it. You will remember all the way from back in John chapter 1 when, when Jesus was being announced and promulgated as the Messiah by John the Baptist. And, and there was this sort of tentative, furtive hopefulness. Maybe this really is the Messiah. And the answer of the early disciples was what? Come and see. Come and see. The knowing is in the... Come and see. And so John here has set us up to believe that something astounding is about ready to happen. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Jesus. Come and do what you do. Come and be who you are. Come be the I am. Come be the resurrection and the life. Where have you laid him? Come and see. And then one of the shortest verses in all the Bible. In fact, one of the two shortest verses in the Bible. Verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept in my book that I mentioned a moment ago, God in pain. When people ask me to sign that book, hey, this is a book that I bought. I love this book. I'm buying it for a friend. I'm buying it for a neighbor. Will you sign this book? Every time I sign that book, I simply write the words, Jesus wept. And then I say, this entire book is about these two words. 300 pages to try in some faltering way, in some, in some in, uh, impotent way, to try and get my mind around the idea that the creator of the universe wept. Jesus wept. He is not aloof from our pain. He is not aloof from our frustration. He is not aloof from our confusion. Jesus wept, weeping there at the tomb. Now, this raises all kinds of questions. Why is he weeping? Some of the more academically minded would say, well, Jesus clearly isn't weeping because Lazarus is dead because he knows he's going to raise him, but I think that's perfunctory and shallow. Jesus is weeping because he's not just standing at a tomb. He is standing in a tomb. The whole world is a giant tomb and he is surrounded by death and disease and suffering and it, it's getting to him. And the unbelief and the, the importunity and the, and the difficulty to break through there's just the whole of the human experience. We've all had these moments. I mean, my wife has these moments regularly. I don't think she might be telling you that. There'll be times where my wife is just crying. And I'll say, sweetheart, why are you crying? And I love it. This is my favorite answer that she gives. She says, I don't know. I love that. 
Life is hard. There's just times where the only appropriate response is not to itemize as much as, as in my you know, husbandly desire. I'd like to have an itemization of exactly why you're ill so that it can be fixed. So that it can be sorted out. And, and I can show you that, in fact, you shouldn't be crying, right? Isn't this the husbandly duty? I, no, no, this, this crying is irrational. I can explain why you shouldn't be crying. But, but when she says, I don't know why I'm crying. I'm just really sad. Then all I can do is hold her. And friends, here, Jesus weeps, not for a single instance, not for an instantiation of, of evil and of death and of, and of disease in the case of Lazarus. Certainly, that is, that is the punctiliar moment. But there's this whole thing that's being wrapped up. Jesus knows the third Passover is just around the corner. He knows that he stands here at the tomb of Lazarus, but soon and very soon, he will go into a tomb of his own. And every person that he sees is knows he knows is subject to death. And many of the people that he sees, he could see perhaps the diseases and the cancers in their body at that very moment. And he knows that many of them will not believe in all of the weight of this, the emotional weight. And even God's shoulders are, even, God's shoulders are not so big that he is incapable of crying. And so Jesus wept. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, no, excuse me, I've jumped down. Jesus wept, verse 35, verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And he did. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? There it is again. Very comfortable with a God working in the past. God could have done something had he only been here on time. Man, God could have done something. And God will do something. And he could have done something. We're happy with a God back there. And we're happy with a God up there. But what about the I am who shows up right in the middle of this funeral mourning situation? Then Jesus, again groaning within himself, came to the tomb. And it was a cave and a stone lay against it. John wants you to know that he was deeply grieved in his soul and in his spirit. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Notice how... Notice how short and and curt jesus sayings have become where have you laid him take away the stone i mean it's just you 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 get a sense here reading between the lines that that jesus just has to speak in these very these very punctuated short things just because he himself is so emotionally moved he himself is so troubled in his spirit that that all he can get out in that circumstance is just to say where have you laid him take away the stone and martha protests this is going to be an embarrassment. It's going to be an embarrassment for Jesus. It's going to be an embarrassment for her. Maybe she's thinking that Jesus wants to, you know, see the body, to mourn over the body. But Martha's thinking, no, no, we had a, you know, we've embalmed him. We've wrapped him t- tied in grave clothes. Whatever Martha is thinking, she's not thinking resurrection. She's not thinking resurrection. Because resurrection is something that happens in the future. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. He's been dead for four days. Verse 40, didn't I just tell you moments ago that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, and there's significance here, I don't have time to develop it. But when the Bible says that people lift up their eyes, there's always something. When John says he lifted up his eyes, something always amazing is about ready to happen. Lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes, lift up. When, when that is said, something big is about ready to take place. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. This alerts us to the fact that Jesus has already prayed deeply, powerfully, continuously. He has already interceded on Lazarus' behalf and has received the word from his father. Wait, 
Wait one day, wait two days, wait three days, wait four days, go late. So Jesus isn't here on the spot trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat, trying to come up with something quickly to save face. No, he's already been interceding. And I'll tell you what I love about this. What I love about this is, is that even when we don't see Jesus praying, we can have confidence that he is continually interceding on our behalf. These prayers have already happened. These prayers are not mentioned by John. Why doesn't John mention these prayers? Because he wasn't there. There's a great passage in the book of Hebrews that says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession. He is in a continual state of interceding for you and your situation. He is in a continual state of interceding. And so here, this is the public prayer that is really the capstone of probably hours of private prayer that have gone into the intercession for this experience. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they might believe that you sent me. Now, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. And that's not strong enough in the Greek here. He shouted. He shouted. The mourning of Jesus has spilled over into anger. It has spilled over into a shout. And that word shout is an important word in the Gospel of John. The rest of the times that the word shout, in fact, the only other times that the word shout is used in the Gospel of John is when the the crowd is shouting for his death. This is a cry. This is Jesus, not timidly. This is not Jesus, you know, quietly, meekly, with a retiring modesty speaking. No, no, no. This is Jesus shouting. And his shout is against death. And his shout is against illness. And his shout is against Satan. He shouts. While the crowd will shout to bring about death, Jesus will shout to bring an end to death. And this is exactly what the Bible says in the eschaton. It says that with the shout of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise. Hadn't Jesus already said back in John chapter 5? Hadn't he already said the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live? I want you to hear that with new ears. The hour is coming and then this three word phrase and now is. Martha and Mary were very comfortable with the idea that in the future, the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth. But Jesus doesn't just say the hour is coming. He says the hour is coming, comma, and now is, comma. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and they will live. Now is, what does that mean? It means that Jesus was talking to and about people who were biologically alive, who were breathing, whose hearts were pumping, whose lungs were filling with air, who were dead. From the divine perspective of the eternal present in which God lives, those that are asleep, like Lazarus, are in fact just... Not, they're not dead, they're just sleeping. And some of those who are alive and breathing and living biologically are already dead. The hour is coming and now is when dead people will hear the voice of God and will be resurrected. Not just Lazarus. Jesus is praying here not only for the resurrection of Lazarus, he's praying for the resurrection of all of those who do not yet believe. They are dead in trespasses and sins, walking, breathing, physiologically, biologically, neurochemically alive, and spiritually dead. Lazarus, he says, come forth. Verse 44, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Jesus invites them to loose 
Lazarus and let him go because that's something they can do. Jesus doesn't need to get involved in that part. Jesus raised from the dead. You now loose him. And I love there's this fascinating little juxtaposition. These grave clothes were, were, were tied very tight on a body, right? And so just get this sort of quasi-comical picture in your mind of the great physical energy it would have taken, the struggle, the spectacle it would have been for Lazarus to like hop out of the tomb like... And, and it, I, I suppose in some way it was funny. It was comical if, it, it, and, and entirely startling. Putting forth great physical effort here and, and they quickly unwrap these tight grave clothes. Verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. That's the point of the story. You're supposed to believe. But some of them that went away, this is fascinating. This is portentous. Here the low bass and the low cellos begin to sound. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together a council and they said, man, what are we going to do? This is getting out of control. This guy's now raising the dead. Verse 48, if we leave this guy alone like this, everyone will believe in him. That's the exact point John wants you to come to yourself. He wants you to come to that same conclusion. If left alone, people will come to believe in Jesus and the Romans will come in and take away both our place and nation. Verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Here, Caiaphas, even though a sinister, politically driven, false high priest actually gives a prophecy, it's better for one to die than for all of us to die. And I imagine that God the Father looked down and said, you are as wrong as can be in heart and right as can be in your words. That is better. And one has come to die. You jump down to verse 55 and it says, and here the low bass and the low cello in the Gospel of John really begin to give those ominous tones. Those minor chords begin to sound. Verse 55, and the Passover of the Jews was near. You are now poised For John chapter 12, verse 1, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Jesus is now ready to face death himself because he has faced death in the person and in the form of a friend that he loved dearly. Lazarus, your friend is sick. The one you love. Friends, I want to make this appeal. I want to make this very specific appeal. Mary, like many of us, was comfortable with a God who could have worked and who will yet work. But the God that's on offer in John chapter 11 is not the I was or the I will be. The God that's on offer in John 11 is the I am. He's the present tense. He's available today. Jesus is available for resurrections today. Not just, and by the way, this is an anomalous situation here. There are very few instances in the whole of the Bible where people were literally bodily, biologically raised from the dead. And only two that I'm aware of, well, three if you include Jesus in the Gospels. So this was not a normal thing. Hundreds and thousands of people were dying, right? So, so it's unrealistic and, and not in keeping with the, 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 the spectacular nature of a resurrection from the dead for us to expect that this kind of thing is going to happen here and now. It can I've heard stories of people that are on the front lines of mission and these kinds of things have happened. But for the most part, 
we should embrace not the idea that God is going to raise in every specific situation an instance, a, a specific or a, an individual resurrection, but that, that from the perspective of God, these people are not dead. They are sleeping. But similarly, from the perspective of God, many who are living are dead. Many who breathe, many whose hearts pump with blood and whose bodies are filled with blood and they have all of the biological indicators of life are dead from the perspective of God. Jesus said the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it and believe will live. God wants to resurrect your life. He wants to resurrect your life every day. And some of you, I put myself in this same category, are in need of resurrection. Not just an eschatological resurrection, but a resurrection here today. A resurrection to a new way of living, a new way of seeing, a new way of thinking, a new way of spending a new way of doing recreation, a new way of doing life, a new way of raising children, a new way of doing marriage. Many of us are dead in situations and we need to be raised. We need to be resurrected. We need, we need to believe that God is not just the I was or the I will be. He is the I am. That God can change your life even now here today. God can raise you just like he raised Lazarus. God can change your marriage. God can change your, your, your financial situation. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I need that one. God can change your situation, whatever that situation might be. You might find yourself in the darkness of addiction, the darkness of adultery, the darkness of a pornography struggle. You might find yourself in, a very, in some, any number of darknesses or situations, and God can resurrect you today. He can say, David, come forth. Joshua, come forth. Mary, come forth. Rebecca, come forth. Anna, come forth. Paul, come forth. Julie, come forth. God can call you forth today and resurrect you today. And you will see the world with new eyes. You will see your marriage with new eyes. You will see your life with new eyes. You will see your finances with new eyes. You will see camp meeting with new eyes. You'll see your local church with new eyes. Hallelujah. You will see life with new eyes. Josh Cunningham has written a song about this very thing, and I'm going to invite him to come forward and sing it. And as he gets ready to sing, I want to read you the lyrics. The song is titled Resurrection. The song is titled Resurrection. And Josh, in this song, perfectly captures the point that is being made here by John, that God is not just in the business of eschatological, end-time, bodily resurrections. God is in the business of resurrecting your life today. God is in the business of raising you from the dead today. God is in the business of raising you from discouragement and despair and whatever the thing is. Maybe God is just in the business of raising you from the tyranny of comfort and leisure and financial security. Man, I, I, it's hard to imagine, but, but David Sherwood has sat in this tent and night after night he has told us that he is ten, he said it two or three times, ten times the man that he would otherwise be if this giant inconvenience named Luke hadn't come into his life. And yet many of us will still be ruled by the tyranny of security, the tyranny of leisure, the tyranny of financial security. Some of you have to be rescued from pornography addictions. Some of you have to be rescued from other kinds of addictions. And some of us just have to be rescued from ourselves. And God comes into that and he shouts. 
He doesn't shout at you. He shouts to you so that you will be raised from the dead, not just bodily in the hereafter, but you can be raised from the dead in the here and now and go on to live the life that you were created to live, an everlasting life, an eternal life, not just a quantity of years, but a quality of life. I am come that they might have life and have it to the full, have it more abundantly. And that abundant life is found when we know God and are known by Him. And we have just begun to scratch the surface of the significance of what it means to know. But God is saying to you and He's saying to me today, saying, David, you need to be resurrected. You've got some things, David, in your life you need to be resurrected from. And I say, Lord, here I am. I'm wrapped in grave clothes. I'm stuck in a tomb with a heavy door at the entrance. I need out. And, and, and Jesus says to me, David, come forth. Gemma, come forth. Katie, come forth. Steve, come forth. Matt, come forth. Ronald, come forth. Phil, come forth. He invites you to come come out into the life. Not just Jesus as an accessory to cultural Adventism or Christianity. Jesus invites you to experience the fullness of what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. When the weight of this world's heavy on your back crushing your life out, squeezing you into the black, when every mistake you've made seems to point back in your direction. Resurrection. Spirit is willing, flesh is weak, temptation strong, silver tongue, double speak, promises leading you on. When the prince of this world seems to win in the battle for your affection. Resurrection. When everyone that you thought you could count on has gone. Slumbering, running, betrayal, self-preservation. When your cup of pain overflows with the bitterness of rejection. Resurrection. When you look at this broken world weary and worn with hate, fear and pride and self-righteous condemnation. When grace is forgotten and all you've got inside are words of correction. Resurrection. The things that you want to do, you find yourself leaving undone. And all the things that you do are best left alone. When you cry out, deliver me from all of my wretchedness and imperfection. Resurrection. And as Josh sings this song, I'm going to invite, I want to invite David Sherwood to come forward because I want to have special prayer for you, David, so you get to respond to the altar call. I rarely do that. Just tell people to come forward. If some of you don't come forward, I'm going to call you forward. Because I know some of your situations. So don't test me. As Josh sings this song and you say, you know what? I need camp meeting. And maybe you're just a... What did you call them yesterday? The people that just show up for one day. What do you call them? The ring-ins. Maybe you're just a ring-in. Well, God bless you. God, come on up here, Dave. Come on up here. Come on up, Noah. Come on up. The Spirit of God has spoken to your heart. And, and, and you are in need of resurrection. A new way of breathing, a new way of thinking, a new way of viewing, a new way of spending, a new way of recreating, a new way of loving, a new way of being married, a new way of doing parenthood, a new way. You just need a resurrection in your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the future, God's going to raise your body from the tomb. But in the here and now, God can raise your spirit. God can raise your soul. God can raise your life. God can raise your marriage right here today. And I imagine that there are people in this tent that need a resurrection, that need a fresh start, that need to leave this camp in the late of May, May, uh, April 28th, and go into May, June, July, to go into the rest of the year raised from the dead, 
And so I'm praying that somehow through this sermon and through this beautiful song that Josh and the girls are about to sing, that God will shout into your situation and say, come forth, come forth, come forth. If you need a resurrection, not just at the end, not just in the by and by, but if you need a resurrection in the here and now, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Come forward and be raised from the dead. The deadness of comfort, the deadness of pain, the deadness of despair, the deadness of hurt, the deadness of infidelity, the deadness of addiction, or any other deadness that you can imagine. If you need to come forward and be raised with Jesus to live that abundant life with Him, I invite you to come forward. Stand with us. Stand with us here and and we'll pray and ask God to raise us from the dead. Won't you come as Joshua sings? strong silver tongue go speak promises leading you on when the prince of this world seems to win in the battle for your affection When your cup of pain overflows with the bitterness of rejection Resurrection And when you look out on this broken world weary and warm Hate, fear, and pride, and self-righteous condemnation. When grace is forgotten, and all that you've got inside are words of correction.
that you want to do You find yourself leaving undone The things that you do are the ones That are best left alone When you cry out Deliver me from all my wretchedness and Imperfection Put your arm around somebody that's near you. Even if you didn't come forward, put your arm around somebody. Reach out and touch somebody. Father in heaven, every one of us in this room is in need of the life that Jesus came to give. Father, not just a biological life, not just a physical life, Father. We need the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. Father, we are living in shadow land right now. We don't even know what real living looks like. We get glimpses of it. When we eat a mango or we hold our newborn baby or we hear a great symphony or we come to big camp, we get glimpses. But Father, we are living in the shadowlands. And I suppose when Jesus was standing there at the tomb, he was surrounded by all of the shadows, all of the doubt, all of the death, all of the disease, and it just overcame him. And he was thinking, if these people only knew... If they only had seen what I have seen, I come from the bosom of the Father. If they, if they could know the love, the opportunity, if they could know for what they were created, they would not be so easily satisfied. They would not be so easily dejected and forlorn. And Father, that brings pain to your heart. It brought pain to the heart of Jesus so much so that he wept. And Father, if ever there was a time in earth's history where we need to lift up our eyes as Jesus lifted up his eyes to see the unseen to see something bigger and better that is beyond Father help us in some way in our local churches and in our own lives and in our families to import that otherness into this life so that people can see beauty people can see fidelity people can see integrity people can see trust people can see community and love and they can say there's something going on there Father, help us to create little strongholds of safety and of peace in our families and in our churches so that people will be drawn to the Christ that is in us, the light that is in us. Father, we want to pray a special prayer for David and Jeannie and Noah and Luke and Anna Joy. Father, David has done a very brave thing this week. He has, he has opened up his doubts and his discouragements and his joys and father he has been vulnerable with us in a way that many of us find it difficult to be vulnerable with those that we know well father i want to pray for a very specific prayer here father i know that they are continuing to seek out some treatment some hope some avenue as yet unexplored or unknown for for luke's seizures father these seizures seriously threaten to undermine the quality of the rest of his life. 
Father, developmentally, these seizures are going to slow him down. They, they could even end his life, Lord. We're praying, we're pleading that David's time here will be a time of healing, a time of resurrection. And we, Father, we pray all the way across the globe in Atlanta right now that you will be with Luke and you will be with his body. And we're praying for a breakthrough, Father. We're praying for resurrection. Lord, we have no doubt with all those smiles that we have seen and the joyous laughter that we have seen and the two squeaky notes on the Sesame Street song, there's not a doubt in our mind that Luke will inhabit eternity with you and with us. But Father, in the here and now, we're praying, decrease the pain, decrease the suffering, decrease the anxiety, decrease the uncertainty. Father, give us a breakthrough. Give Jeannie and David a breakthrough. Give Luke a breakthrough on these seizures. Father, every one of us has stories here that are different and yet oh so similar to the Luke story. We have pain. We have heartache. We have confusion. Help us, Father, to see that sometimes death and disease are windows into your goodness. Father, Mary and Martha could have never imagined that the news would be even better than Jesus showing up on time. Jesus coming late turned out to be better good news. What a story to tell. Father, forgive us where we have doubted your timing, where we have doubted your goodness. Forgive us where we have thought that you were incompetent or insensitive. Father, we are sorry. Help us through the difficult times, through the deaths, through the discouragements to see on the other side of that. Not a God who causes these things, but a God who certainly uses them and who superintends them to his glory. Didn't Jesus say to his disciples, this sickness is not unto death, but God is going to come off looking really, really good. Father, I pray in our lives, in our families, in our hurts, discouragements and addictions that we would cling to the faith, cling to the hope, cling to the belief that in, in the end, when it's all said and done, when she's all done and dusted, that you are going to come off looking very, very good. And we will cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus and say, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Father, we put our arms around one another now as a symbol and a sign that your arms of love are around us. We extend community to one another. We extend hope and belief to one another. If someone is discouraged, teach us how to raise them up, how to encourage them. Father, we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We believe He is the bread of life. We believe He is the light of the world. We believe He is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe He is the good shepherd. We believe He is the true vine. Father, today we believe. Help our unbelief. Grow us into the best versions of ourselves. Grow our churches into the best versions of themselves. And may there be resurrection. May there be life. And soon and very soon, may there be celebration in your eternal presence as we behold the Lamb of God who has taken, is taking, and will take away the sin of the world. The great I Am in whose name we pray, let everyone who longs for resurrection say, Amen. Turn to that brother or sister next to you and say, God is in the business of resurrection. God is in the business of resurrection.
Oh, I love you. God bless you all. We will see you here tonight at 7 o'clock for an amazing concert. You've got nothing else to do today but suffer in the rain. So come tonight for a concert. We can't wait to see you here. God bless you all. We love you.